0: The Mortasa Bhugoa Tor Hatoa Samma Sambuddhasa. The Mortasa Bhugoa Tor Hatoa Samma Sambuddhasa. The Mortasa Bhugoa Tor Hatoa Once again, this is the first Sunday of the month, and so I'm happy to uh, spend some time considering uh, this evening the Dhammapada verse that uh, we can see on our uh, calendar, of the month of December. Dhammapada verse number 90, which says, There is no tension for those who have completed the journey and have become free from the distress of bondage. A very nice photo of some monk's hands in Anjali, not looking like there's any tension or distress there at all. Certainly the um, experience of distress, uh, something we're all familiar with, the distress of habits, mm. the habitual mind states, and feelings of limitation and uh, being tripped up over and over again mm. is distressing. And, and the, certainly, the idea, I find, the idea of being free from all habitual. Limitations. It's very, very inspiring, very uplifting, very encouraging. And here the Buddha points out that uh, for those who have completed the journey, there's no distress, no tension. They're no cool. The fire has gone out. And And for those of us who have not completed the journey, well then we've got some work to do and when I read this verse, I think this is perhaps one of the things that stands out for me most clearly, is this image of the journey to be taken. There is a journey to go on. There's a goal to reach. And The image the Buddha gave of having found a path through the forest and overgrown and, and then making his way through this uh, tangle uh, of the forest path until he, he finds the city, the image of, of freedom, of liberation. And then the encouragement, of course, for us to also walk this path, to take this journey. But thinking about this, I noticed I was thinking about this verse, one of the things that came to my mind was the um, a conversation I had uh, quite some years ago now, with uh, a, a very dear friend of mine, a fellow monk. We were talking about the uh, nature of self. And, and I, uh, I, I don't know exactly what comment I made, but something along the lines of, I think I'm going to uh, spend more time talking to people about uh, the relative sense of self. Because there is this journey, there is this path that we're supposed to be travelling along, and there's got to be somebody travelling along it, and some people are so keen to dismiss the self that they don't progress on the path. They're in such a hurry to reach the goal that they don't even accept that there is a, a trouble-making self here. And so I think I'm going to talk more about the self. And and this uh, good friend, this monk friend of mine, he, he exploded on me. He really I was shocked. I mean, he really hit the roof. He, said, he almost called me a heretic and made it very clear to me the Buddha did not talk about a self. And I said, oh, yes, he did. Uh, I quoted to him from the Mahamangala Sutta where the Buddha says, Atta Samapini Teacher, one's self rightly guided. And, and uh, the Buddha talked often about the self, he used the word Atta a lot. Yes, he talked about Anatta, that's true. He did talk about Anatta, not self. But he also talked about self. And, well, anyway, my friend was not going to uh, give way at all. And um, fortunately, I gave way and we didn't have a falling out. Um, but there was enough passion there for something unpleasant to happen. And uh, it took me a while to really, really register that, that, that he was still finding uh, his identity in concepts about practice. Because I know if I stuck a pen into him, there would definitely be a very annoyed self come back at me and let me know what he thought about my sticking a pen in him. Or if I insulted him or, or where he came from or his family, there would definitely have be been a self who would uh, have been very unhappy with me. But I was speaking last week about this, the people who are still finding identity and concepts about practice, the level of dhamma, and those who are really practicing, those who have surrendered themselves to practice, is a very different language. And so I came to understand eventually, well, from his perspective, he's probably got a degree in in religion or something, and and, uh, from his perspective about the theory of practice, yes, the Buddha did say there was no self. But from the aspect of practice, you know, when it really comes down to it, you know, it's very foolish to bypass the self. There's definitely a me here. And, uh, since that time I have uh, spent more time talking about and and I want this evening to speak a little bit about the self. Because if there is a journey that uh, we're supposed to be taking, well, there's got to be somebody taking the journey. We can't idealize about there being no self. Um without risking uh, getting ourselves into big trouble. And there, there are real risks. Uh, one thing is that we can just become more conceited than we were already, deluded by the idea of practice, rather than really working on our experience of limitations, which are the abstractions to the journey. A few days ago, I spoke with the community about uh, a teaching that uh, Tanajan Mahamon gave uh, you'll see the photo on the shrine at the moment one of Ajahn Chah's most senior disciples and, who passed away uh, about two weeks ago now and uh, very old and venerable and wise and, and wonderful, very beautiful uh, monk and one of the things uh, Tanajan Maha Amon would say to monks when they'd go to visit him uh, he would always have a little snippet of some Dhamma teaching and one of the things he said one day was well, he said that, uh, as young monks, what you want to be thinking about is training yourself so that when you go to visit a monastery, they're really pleased to see you, and that when you leave, they're really sorry to see you go. What you don't want is to become a monk, that when you arrive, they're really, really sorry to see you arrive, and when you leave, they're delighted about it. And uh, it's just a little uh, encouragement in training, but a very helpful pointer. But there are some monks around who, uh, I can tell you, not in this monastery, hopefully, I don't expect so, but there are some monks around who sadly wouldn't wouldn't heed such encouragement. They would basically say, well, any view of oneself, likeable or dislikable, agreeable or disagreeable, is a form of conceit and you just have to get rid of it. You don't want to be focusing on becoming an agreeable somebody. That's just building up more conceit. Well, I can even understand that perspective as well, but it doesn't doesn't accord with the teachings as I have heard them from the Buddha, which is that we have to work with what we've got. This is what we've got. We do have the sense of being limited, of being stuck, of having these habits, and there is a journey to take, there is a goal, conventionally speaking, and there is a me. If you praise me, then there's somebody who feels good about that. If you're rude and insulting and unkind to me, there is somebody who doesn't like that. And what do we do with that? Do we have the skills to engage that as it's happening with mindfulness, with sensitivity, with sense restraint, with wise reflection, so then we can let go and move on? Because if we don't have those skills, then this self that we are actually becomes more contracted. Mm. The heart becomes colder, colder. And there's another um, example which pertains to this, this contemplation, which from the time I was living with Ajahn Chah, and I remember, uh, I don't remember how I came to be there, but I was sitting with Ajahn Chah in Wapapong, and a Western woman came over to visit. Pat Stoll was her name, and she later went on to become Sister Roachana, the first of the uh, Sila Dura in our community. And she had some questions about practice. And, and Pat was asking Lumpur Cha this question. She said, Lumpur, how can it be that you teach and the Buddha taught Anatta, and that's what we're supposed to be investigating when we practice Vipassana, but then he also taught Samatta. And if there's no self, well, how can there be anybody concentrating on a meditation object? And I said, oh, very good question, very good question. And his reply was, which i always remembered, he said, when, when you're practicing samatha, you are working with an assumed sense of self. You're working with the sense of self when you're practicing samatha. If you don't have a sense of self, then you're not going to be somebody who can concentrate on a meditation object. So you do assume the validity of the sense of self. But then when you're working on vipassana, when you're contemplating not-self, then yes, you are contemplating anatta, or not-self. But then he went on to say, he said, but when you really know what's what, he said, you're beyond self and not-self. So these pointers with the Buddha's talking about atta samapaniticca, oneself rightly directed, uh, or anatta, or sabbe sankara anatati. All conditioned phenomena are not self. Yadha pasati atani esa duke Seeing this with wisdom is the path to freedom. See that all conditioned phenomena is not self, is the path to freedom. So how do you bring these two things together when the Buddha says, oneself being rightly directed and that all conditioned phenomena are not self. So we need to get a little bit more subtle and investigated and not jump to conclusions uh, about what's being meant by self and and bypassing it I think it was um, I think it was John Wellwood who uh, initiated this expression of spiritual bypassing uh, in reference to uh, people who uh, pick up the spiritual disciplines who are interested in meditation and keeping precepts and and, uh, studying, uh, very committed and very enthusiastic about their practice. But they grasp the goal of practice and miss the point of where they're at. And this spiritual bypassing phenomena expresses itself where, for instance, you have some, uh, say, some meditation teacher who's getting very angry at you or abusing his power in some way, and when you try to offer them a reflection or you try to question them about they they can just just say what's your mind? Just what's your mind or all conditions are empty or or everything's impermanent or, or something. Uh, rather than really accepting the reality, the Dhamma of where they're at, which is maybe that they're angry, and accepting that and investigating that so they can let go and move on, they bypass where they're at, or they try to bypass where they're at, and be something spiritual, which they're not. So we need to be very very subtle about this and it's not, it's not something that's outside of the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha uh, taught very clearly about this and uh, again last week I was talking about the difference of, between a theory and practice of Dhamma and, and Pariyati, Patipati, and Pativedi, the, the uh, third stage of practice where you first you study about the way, about the journey, about the task. And then we, when we've got enough preparedness, then we apply ourselves to it. When we're ready, we give ourselves into it. We let go of the security that comes with having all these good ideas about practice. In the beginning, we're just totally all over the place. We don't know whether we're coming or going. We're, we're just getting off on samsara running around like chickens with our head off, thinking that everything's just great. And until we crash and we realise, well, it's not all great at all, and we start looking for a solution. And then maybe if we have the good fortune... We come across something like the Buddha's teachings and so we learn about the Buddha's teachings and, and that's pariyati, we're studying about. And you can get a real sense of confidence and oh, this is such a relief and you feel really good and really inspired by holding on to the ideas about practice. But when we start to actually practice we realise that holding on to any ideas is an obstruction. That To really find peace and stillness which is the context of investigation We can't truly investigate our obstructions to contentment and our obstructions to freedom unless there's a context of stillness, of spaciousness. To get into that stillness and spaciousness, we need to let go even of our ideas of the goal. And so we enter into practice and sometimes it means letting go of some of the good feelings of security and confidence that we had at the earlier stage when we were so sure that Buddhism was right. But pati pati dhamma, the level of practice, that's not the end either. That's where we're really giving ourselves But pati is the realization, is the liberation, is the freedom. And I think of it as like, um, it's like when you can't ride a bike, and uh, maybe when you're a kid and, and you see bikes and you've heard about bikes and you, you know about the possibility of riding a bike and maybe you can talk about bikes and you might have even read about bikes, and you know something about bikes, but you've never learned to ride a bicycle. It doesn't matter, even if you don't learn to ride a bicycle until, say, you're, you're 20, and you've read all about bikes, you've studied bikes, you know all about the penny-farthing and, and the history of bikes, and now these, these beautiful, lightweight mountain bikes and how wonderful they are. And, and so you know everything you to know about bikes, but you can't ride a bike until you actually get on one. And then, probably, like most people, you fall off the first time. You've got somebody behind you holding it. Maybe they run behind you until eventually one day you feel you've got your balance. You're there. You're pedaling. You've got the handlebars and your balance. You're in your body. You see where you're going. You've got all the things in place. And then you tell the person to let go and you can ride a bike. Now you're actually practicing. Now you're actually not just talking about riding a bike or studying riding a bike. You're actually riding a bike. But after a while, when you've been riding a bike, you just don't think about it anymore. You're just, you're just so completely competent in riding a bike that you don't even think about riding a bike. And somebody who's never ridden a bike before, you go, know, what's wrong with you? You can't ride a bike? What's your problem? I mean, everybody can ride a bike. Well, when you really know how to ride a bike, it's just become, you become one with it. And even if you don't ride a bike again for another 20 years, you get on a bike and you can ride the bike because you've really learned it. And so in our different stages of practice, it's similar to this that we, as we move from being completely confused into learning about practice, there is a self, there is somebody here. There is me with my problems and there is a path of practice that I want to progress along and succeed on. But then we go to another stage of actually even investigating the sense of self. So we have a sense of self and that's okay to be the sense of self but we don't hold it too tightly because the Buddha did point out that it's not ultimate but we don't pretend we don't have it and then we move into investigating what is the sense of self what is the feeling of I want even something wholesome like I want to progress in Dhamma there's nothing unwholesome about that is there well even wanting to progress in Dhamma can be unwholesome subtly so I think technically it's referred to as upakilesa. It's not your common and garden variety gross kilesa. You know, like I want ice cream, pretty obvious. But this, I want to be free from greed. I want jhanas. I want profound insight. There can also be grasping of that. I want to be free from doubt. Yeah ostensibly a very reasonable um, desire to have. But the experience, if we are consumed by desire or by ill will or by doubt, the experience is definitely one of being obstructed. Me, there's definitely somebody here who's got a problem. And you can endure your problem for years, you can try all your techniques, all your strategies, and still be very, very stuck with a sense of me and my limited practice. Well, it could be because we're trying too hard. We're not actually really, really exercising mindfulness to be with this experience of what does it feel like to be a me who's got desire. We're not quick enough to catch it. We're So the desire, I want to, be, I want to have profound insight, and then we immediately jump forward and imagine ourselves with profound insight and then thinking about how we're going to get there. Well, we need to get more subtle and more, more precise and more immediate in our attention. So even when the feeling of, I want profound insight arises, that our, our readiness, our skill is so there at the moment that we can investigate that. Even that, until we see that even wanting, even wanting profound insights, even that gesture of clinging creates a self, which is an obstruction. And so, but now we're not letting go as an ideal. We're not just letting go because I think I should let go, or because the teacher told me to let go, or because the Buddha said there's no self. But rather we're letting go because we see this moment of clinging is causing suffering. And in the moment of seeing the cause of suffering, then there's a letting go. And that's the experience. Yeah. And that's practice. Mm. And then we need to take it to another level and another level, and we keep going refining it down. There's a model used in, um, in psychoanalysis there. Uh, I think it was uh, Robert Moore talked about, the Jungian psychoanalyst, who talked about the uh, stages of, of maturation where he said, we move out of unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence into conscious competence into unconscious competence. Uh, It could just sound like a load of waffle, but if you think about it, that's a very helpful model. Unconscious incompetence is where we're running around, as I said, like chickens with their head chopped off, thinking samsara is great, until something happens and we start to do something about it. And we move into a level of conscious incompetence, which is the level of pariyati, where we're studying about things. We say, oh yeah, there is something I can do about this. And then as we actually... Practice. We really give ourselves into the practice. We start to experience. This is the result of doing something about it. This is what it means to progress on the journey. This is the feeling of conscious competence. There is something I know I can do. I am practicing in accordance with the teachings, and I am experiencing the benefit. But that's not the goal. That's not. That. We're still nowhere near the goal. We're still just practicing. And then, as this model presents, there's a level of unconscious competence where we even forget about ourselves totally on the path. So having the sense that there is a journey to go on and there is somebody who has to take this journey, I think it's uh, very important to, uh, to take full responsibility for the self. You know, it's, like, it's like when you, you prepare yourself to come into evening chanting. We come to evening chanting. We don't put on our dirty work clothes, and come here smelling bad, what do we do? We go and have a shower, clean ourselves up, and then put on our best clothes, our cleanest clothes, to come into the Dhamma hall here. We prepare ourselves. And likewise, we need to prepare ourselves for this journey. There is a lot we can do to bring this conventional sense of self into line with Dhamma. So even though we might be working with conceit, it's a more skillful level of conceit. It just happens to be that the conceited view of self, that I am pure, accords more with dhamma than the conceited view of self with I am impure. It's still a conceited view of self, that I am somebody who is practicing cultivating purity. It's still a conceited view of self. But that conceited view of self is more likely to give rise to insight into dhamma then the conceited view of self as I'm a slob is not making any effort. So it's an important thing to understand that we can prepare ourselves. We can prepare ourselves with gratitude. We can prepare ourselves, as I said, with integrity. We can prepare ourselves with uh, commitment. This is, uh, we're coming up now to the winter retreat period here in the monastery. We'll have three months of uh, basically unplugging from a lot of the uh, busy activity that we're sometimes involved with the work projects and the communications and so on so maybe uh, undoing the uh, involvement with the internet and the emailing and building projects and so on and and get really quiet and and keep things super simple for three months and at the beginning of this time I'll speak with the community and I will encourage people to take on determinations or cultivating what what could be called vow power you know resolutions, making a determination and uh, because this is again preparing the self preparing this conventional sense of being somebody in a way that really accords with Dhamma now if we haven't prepared ourselves then even though we may hear the best teachings we may even live with the best teachers for that matter but if we don't have the right conditions if we don't have a sila, if we don't have samadhi if we don't have restraint, if we don't have wise reflection, if we don't have determination, if we haven't rightly prepared ourselves and we're not rightly directed, then no matter how good the conditions are or the company we might be in, uh, we are perhaps not going to uh, realise the goal. So working with the sense of self and working with not-self appreciating that when we really know what's what, as Ajahn Chah would say, then we're beyond self and not self. But of course there are dangers on this path, and I know sometimes when people have come to see me, young monks have come to see me, and they've talked about some of the obstructions that they're experiencing in practice, and very distinct feelings of being a somebody who's very unhappy, whether it's doubt or desire or resentment, whatever, there's definitely a me, a very solid me there, and... Sometimes people get very stuck with the sense of me, and they, they try all their spiritual techniques they they read all the scriptures and they keeping very good rules, and some of them still feel very stuck and so sometimes I've i 've been so bold as to suggest, well, you know maybe you need to look at it from a different perspective and uh, you know we're not we 're not your average Indian two thousand five hundred years ago growing up in a the extended family unit and and having a reasonably integrated sense of self who was also well equipped with integrity and, and gratitude and all the other virtues that the Buddha articulated before he introduced them to the insight meditation practice. We're actually pretty much all over the place. A lot of us come to practice. We've only just stopped, stopped taking drugs and, and we don't have sensory straight down. And, uh, and so we're not really properly prepared. And as a result, we do actually accumulate a lot of, Unlived life. We have a a backlog of unlived life, of pain that we don't really live through. Emotional pain. We we use our will to block out the experience of suffering. Instead of engaging in wise reflection, perhaps because we weren't given the teachings properly, instead of engaging in wise reflections and looking at the cause of suffering, seeing the cause of suffering and letting go of the cause of suffering, all we do is we use our will to just block it in there. And if this happens emotionally often enough, for long enough, well then the heart does close down and becomes cold. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was the 21st of November, somebody asked a question about how to love without being caught up in suffering. And I remember I did answer the first part of the question, but I didn't answer the second part, which was how can you uh, apply the Buddhist teachings uh, in a way that means you remain sensitive and in touch with the people you live with, caring, sensitive, kind, friendly, and not run the risk of becoming a cold-hearted, split-off sort of person. Because this is a risk. There's a real risk that that when we read enough about the teachings and we use our intellect to imagine what the goal is in practice, we can become very idealistic. And and then the pain that's stored in our hearts, the pain of unlived life, is just something we don't even want to look at compared to the inspiration and the bliss of hearing about the Buddha's teachings and imagining how wonderful the goal is going to be and how wonderful the journey is going to be and the reality of their journey. It's like, you know, I was talking to... Uh, Tan Ario uh, earlier today, he's just come back from his trip to Florida and where he was visiting family and friends over there and here he is several days back and he's still recovering from jet lag the reality of travelling is nothing like what it says in the books my trips to New Zealand, every time I went to New Zealand I always think it's going to be wonderful going to New Zealand to see my friends again and the monasteries there and the the weather is so nice not to mention the beaches and the forest and the bird song and you know just being back in New Zealand again it's just going to be great every time without fail going back to New Zealand was a painful ordeal the jet lag of whatever a minimum of 30 hours flying and nearly always I would catch a cold and then you you arrive at the immigration and they, they basically want to search you and keep you there and they think I'm some sort of a terrorist or something and then there's nobody there to meet me at the airport and pick me up and and whatever else goes on. The reality of the journey is not like the fantasies. So the fantasies we have about the path of practice can be wonderful. When it comes down to practice it's something else altogether and practice means facing this all this unlived life, all this pain and sometimes it's true that um, the scriptures, what you read in the textbooks, and even what our, our great revered masters in the forest in Thailand have been teaching us is not enough. You know, Sometimes we need to use skills that have come out of our own tradition. And so there is a place, and I have spoken often about, using some of the thera- psychotherapeutic skills that have been developed in the last few decades in the West. Some of the suffering, some of the pain, the trauma... That we have locked into our system needs to be approached with a, a subtlety, an intelligence, a discernment that undoes this, pati- this particular type of ca- tangle. You know, it's like the, the, the consciousness becomes tangled, and how are we going to undo it? Ajahn Chah, talking about practice, he, he would say it's like with your fishing line. You know, if you go fishing and the fishing line gets all knotted and tangled up, and to undo it is like undoing the obstructions to the mind. You pull it this way and it gets tighter. You pull it that way and it gets tighter. And then eventually you pull it this way, oh and it gets loose. All oh, right, that's the way. That's the way to undo the tangle. Well, it is the case that there are a good number of, of very sensitive, very skilled, well-practiced Westerners who have uh, discovered how to undo the tangles of the, the Western contracted Western psyche And so there are some skills that are now uh, available, thank goodness. Because uh, 35 years ago, when we were starting off in Thailand, uh, there were many casualties of an otherwise serious commitment to the spiritual life. People who thought that what they read in the scriptures was going to solve all their problems, and it didn't. And very sadly, they lost faith, and uh, some became uh, very confused and, and suffered very intensely because they didn't have the skills to undo the tangles of their own minds. But as I said, these days there are uh, some around who are able to help us with undoing these tangles of the mind, and for that we can be very grateful. However, still it can be very dangerous. Uh, and I know my, myself when I, uh, some years ago, where I was considering some of these. Uh, Techniques and teachings that were around and, and uh, felt an incredible sense of resistance to really paying attention to the self. I was terribly committed to bypassing this burden. But the fact was it wasn't working. There were areas where I still, still felt very stuck. But every time I started to think about psychotherapeutic technique or psychoanalysis or any of these skills that were around in the West, Every time I started to about it, I got another, an intense rejection, resistance to it. I didn't want to know about it. And partly, I think it was, it was wise and skillful, because there is a real danger. There's a very real danger of turning our attention away from the traditional teachings of freedom from self, freedom from bondage, freedom from suffering, and looking at this very feeling of me. There's a real danger in doing that, and the danger is that you can become distracted and become overly, overly impressed with the self. And again, this is something that I've observed with people who have um, been meditating, some for many, many years, and struggling terribly with their unlived life issues. And then they find some skills and some help from the psychotherapeutic community. And what happens? These tangles start to undo, and the sense of relief is so blissful, is so wonderful, is so meaningful, that in my reading, I would sadly say that they actually become much more deluded than they were before. Their commitment to the path of liberation, to the path of transcendence, to the path of realization of the goal is lost, and they become possessed with a practice at the level of uh, the ego. So there's a very real danger of turning to look at the self, but there's also a very real danger, Of not being willing to do it when that's what's called for. The self is a very complex ourselves, and it just has a whole community of them, it's not just one self. Ourselves are very complex, convoluted, conniving, deceitful, devious, tricky fellows, Uh, and we need to be equally skilled in our learning to get to know them. Because if we just try to bypass them, they will continually cause us trouble. So, what's the solution? How do we deal with this? Well, my feeling is, after these years of practice, 35 years of practicing in this particular tradition, my feeling is we do have what we need. We have in this teaching and this training the skills and the example of a way that means we can safely practice working with self and with not-self. And in my thinking about this, I think for me there are four essential practices which I tend to encourage people about. And I think, uh, in in my view, anybody who's serious about practice in the first few years, I mean like the first ten years, they should cultivate these four practices, I would say every day even. And the four practices are mindfulness of breathing, cultivation of loving kindness, contemplation of death, and the dedication of punya. These four practices. I trust that if we engage in these four practices mindfully, skillfully, with commitment... Mindfully, skillfully, with commitment, then we can't go too far off. Mm. The mindfulness of breathing is a uh, discipline that we would all know from experience, brings us into the body and helps protect us from getting caught up in that split off, idealistic mind. Mindfulness of breathing, if you're really doing, you've got to really come into the body. What does it mean to be with the breath? to be aware of the breath lengthening, shortening. What does it feel like? If, you, like? if you want to calm the body down, one of the best things you can do is just very gently lengthen the out-breath. Mm-hmm. Now to do that, you've got to really come into the body. And many people can't do that because they're so caught up in the idealistic notions about practice that they can't come into the body and that means they've got to address that issue. And if they address it, well, then they're going to find uh, some some strength and some stability to mindfulness of breathing, contemplate, col- uh, cultivation of loving-kindness, that um, as we progress on this path, uh, sooner or later, all of us are going to encounter, probably, I would suggest, the uh, hypercritical mind, the tendency to always be criticising or judging. Always taking a position for or against the experience that we're having or other people are having, or life, or existence. Always taking a position. The discriminative intelligence that we were trained with in our schools is wonderful. Our discriminative intelligence is, 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 is a tremendous benefit to us. I know if it wasn't for discriminative intelligence that I was trained with and I would never have left New Zealand And I come across this training. Uh, Discriminative intelligence is also what's given us the modern medicine which we benefit from. Personally, I probably would have died if not during childbirth and soon afterwards with some disease or other or motorbike accident or something. So uh, I'm not uh, demeaning discriminative intelligence. But if all we've got is discriminative intelligence and we don't understand unitive intelligence, that's a problem. That's really imbalanced. And so the cultivation of loving-kindness, or compassion, metta, karuna, mudita and upeka for that matter as well, but particularly loving-kindness and compassion, the cultivation of these is the cultivation of a unitive intelligence where we can let go of our compulsive judging mind. The judging mind is always taking a position for and against. Even if we're having a good time, there's something within us. This is how it should be. And the bad news about that is that when we're having a bad time, that same voice is going to come in and say, it shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be this way. Life shouldn't be this way. And there's no peace. There's no peace so long as we're still caught up in the compulsive judging mind. And so the cultivation of the heart of loving kindness, if we're really doing it with sensitivity, uh, with mindfulness, with skill and with commitment, then it can help release us out of that habit of the compulsive judging mind. And then the <clears throat> contemplation on death is a protection against denial. That, uh, it's it's uh, the whole story of the culture, the, the, the casual culture that we live in these days. The sports industry, the entertainment industry, the financial industry, uh, all of it basically, most of it is about how to forget about reality. Fashion, I mean, why would people want to change their clothes so often, for goodness sake? I mean, it's it's a distraction. Food, it's a distraction. And a lot of entertainment. It's a distraction. A distraction from what? A distraction from the fact that we know one day we're going to lose everything. And we're all going to die. And however much joy and pleasure we might have from eating food and from listening to beautiful music or from viewing gorgeous art or reading profound, beautiful literature, or enjoying the beautiful company of friends and family, no matter how much pleasure we might get from life on the sensory level, something within us knows that we're going to lose it all, all of it. And so long as we're still ignorant and caught in denial, which is what ignorance is, it's a habit of denial of reality, so long as we're caught in that, then a tremendous amount of energy... Is being consumed. Yeah. You know, a lot of, it's like the denial of death is like a cancer. You know, when you get a tumor, a cancer tumor, it consumes a vast amount of energy and eventually kills off your body by consuming all this energy. Yeah. It kills you. This denial, this habit of denial, basically, is what kills us off from life. And we don't see, we can't see reality. We can't see, why are we so attached to sensuality? Why are we so attached to family and friends and, and experiences and traveling and mm. and our fantasies, a lot of it is to do with the fact that we don't realize we're all going to die. So the Buddha, out of his compassion and his wisdom, not because he was a sad sack and wanted to make us unhappy, not at all, but quite the opposite, because he wanted us to be really happy, profoundly happy, fully happy, unconditionally happy, uh, he encouraged us to contemplate and to really regularly contemplate the fact that we're going to die. And all conditions that arise cease. It helps protect us against the habit of denial. And then the fourth, what I call essential practice, is the dedication of punya, which is something that I I uh, seriously encourage people to do regularly and I myself do every day before going to bed at night. The very last formal act I do before I take my teeth out and put them in a jar and go to bed <laughs> the very last formal act I do of the day is going to the shrine and bowing and making, generating the conscious wish that whatever goodness has come as a result of my practice today, that I give it all away. I dedicate it to my preceptors, to my teachers, to my family, to my parents, to everybody who lives here on this hill, to all beings, all realms, all directions throughout all time. And the benefit of the cultivation of the dedication of punya, which will be again the last ritual act we do here together in the evening, the benefit of this uh, cultivation of dedication of, of punya, of accumulated goodness, is that it helps us, protects us from getting full of ourselves, spiritual conceit, inflation. It's so easy as you start realising for yourself the benefit of the path of practising and keeping with the teachings, the goodness, the joy, the potential, the, the, the blessings that come from that, that you can really start to get off on yourself. You really start to think you're somebody. And then these, this pathetic ego character comes in and starts to usurp the understanding and even the, perhaps the un- insights that come from practice and starts making a me out of it. And then we've established another unfortunate, serious, subtle, but nevertheless serious obstruction to the path. And so one way of protecting ourselves from being caught in cultivating these obstructions is this regular ritual dedication of punya. And whatever goodness has arisen from my practice today, I give it all away. So as I was saying, my uh, my confidence is that it is within this teaching. uh, It's safe to work on both the level of self and the level of not self. We don't have to be afraid so long as we're really applying the teachings mindfully, skillfully, consistently. And thank you very much this evening for your attention.